because God was just convicting me about the fact that we can do all the stuff of church without really taking care to assess whether it's producing the fruit that we've been commissioned to produce, which is maturity. So I went on a quest to try and find people who have been thinking about this hard and um, learn from them, people like Mike Breen and Paul McConaughey and Jeff Vanderstelt and any number of other people, and um, came across this description of a disciple which we've found really useful in terms of assessing the various aspects of church life against a specific description. Does our preaching produce this outcome? Does our worship produce this outcome? And so the, dis- the description of a disciple is as follows. Um, it might be worth making a note of this, and if you can improve on it, you know, that, that's great. It's just a, a starting point mainly. So a disciple is someone who's increasingly worshipping Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and obeying Jesus in all of life, and helping others to do the same. So, um, just so you know, the font has changed. I did not choose a shamrock or clubs or whatever that is, but that's pretty cool. (laughs) Clovers, is it? So, a disciple is increasingly, these clauses are all quite important, Because it's fundamental to understand that discipleship is a process. In my opinion, discipleship is a process which begins before salvation and doesn't end until the judgment day. So there's no Christian, no matter how mature you are, who doesn't need discipling. But it's also important to understand that when you've got an alpha course running and your guest gets saved on week 10... You have been discipling them since day one. Does that make sense? So it's really important that we take discipleship, we rescue that word from a post-alpha six-month period and say, no, discipleship is much more comprehensive than that. This is all discipleship from, from before salvation to eternity. So we are increasingly... You're, you're looking for progress. You're not looking for perfection. You're looking for progress. Increasingly worshipping Jesus, delighting in him, falling for him, um, praising him, worshipping him, trusting him. I, I guess we, we know people in church life or on the fringes of church maybe who can tick some of those boxes, but maybe we don't see their delight in God that you need to be seeing being changed by Jesus, we're looking for genuine transformation. It's not just that we agree with a certain set of values, but that his work within us is, is causing transformation. And obeying Jesus, you need a response. And that, that has to be lived out in all of life. So there's no part of your life that doesn't get saved. There's no part of your life that isn't part of the discipleship process. It's not okay to say, I'd really like to talk to you about the Bible, but don't talk to me about my marriage. Don't talk to me about my money. And, and different cultures will have different strongholds. It's all of life. And helping others to do the same. So there's multiplication inherent in disciple-making. So in order to do this... 
I came across a little formula from Bill Hybels. He was using it in the context of evangelism, but I thought it was really helpful in the context of discipleship as well, which we've slightly adjusted. But he talks about close proximity and attractive life and clear communication. So Mike Frisbee, one of his observations at the end of Mike's talk was that you actually have to be present in people's lives. Jesus said to his disciples, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He had a three-year public ministry. Some people think he spent about half of that, mainly with the 12. And he didn't end his time on earth with a global following of millions and millions of people, but he ended his time on earth with a handful of people that he had carefully poured his heart and life into. And he did that by sharing his life. Dave, can you just read that, um, David Barham, can you read that Thessalonians verse out for us in a nice, big, loud voice that you just pointed out a second ago? This is worth hearing. So, nearness is really important for imitation, isn't it? There are inherent strengths and weaknesses with the various aspects of church life. And we need to understand those strengths and weaknesses and accommodate for them. So, for example, when someone's preaching, as Mike said, you know what they think, and you know what they teach, but you're not, you don't have any exposure to their day-to-day -day life in that context, do you? And so that's really an unknown, and that, that, that can't be solved by preaching. So I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying it can't in itself do this other thing about being close to one another. So we need close proximity with an attractive life. You, the thing about Jesus was people wanted to be with him. Even people who are far away from God wanted to be with him. So people have got to see something in our lives that they want to emulate, whether that's your life in the spirit, your life in the word, your fathering or mothering, your, your devotional life, your radical faith. You know, these things attract us two people, but if they're not there, then nearness is only going to cause problems. Nearness is going to reveal the emperor's new clothes. There's got to be an authenticity to what you're drawing people to and replicating. And then you add to that clear communication, the ability to articulate something, and you've got a powerful combination. So we've identified what a disciple is, and the process of discipleship is creating those things using close proximity and attractive life and clear communication. We've talked about the courageous multiplication of discipleship, and I think it's important to just unpack why it takes courage to make disciples, because um, it does. And Mike hit a couple of these notes in his talk. It takes courage because we need to be available 
and vulnerable. Let me just give you an example of that. I was once doing a course, church planting course with New Frontiers years ago that Tony Thompson was leading. And so he was doing lots of these classroom type sessions like this where there's someone at the front and everyone's listening. But then we used to do Q&A and he opened up about one area of life where he was planting the church. And I think he was planting the church in St. Neus and his wife didn't want to go with him. And one way or another, they felt that he should go and plant this church and she should stay. I think she was a head teacher. So they had this period where they weren't quite on the same page. And this is a church leader opening up to a bunch of 25-year-olds who think that such a thing is impossible to contemplate. Surely all church leaders walk 10 feet above the ground with angels around them singing their praises. And, and the, the, the Red Sea opens every time they need it to. And because he was vulnerable with us in that way, and he wasn't saying this is the right way, this is the wrong way, he's just saying this is the problem we're facing, this is what we're doing about it. Is that right, is that wrong, who knows? Recently, or actually a couple of years ago in church life, we were going through a really difficult patch where it looked like there were factions beginning to form. And my wife, my dear wife, got caught in between the leadership and one of these factions and was really between a rock and a hard place. And um, I remember one morning on my way to work, just as I was putting my shoes on, grabbing my coat and my bag, she just pointed at me, just as I had my hand on the door handle. She said, just so you know, Daniel, I hate being an elder's wife. Now, that is not easy to hear. But as Mike said, we need to know our identity in the gospel. So I, I felt really, by God's grace, peaceful. If, if I'm going to, you know, my wife and family come first. If I'm going to step down from leadership, that's no problem to me. I'm still saved by, by God. I'm chosen. I'm hidden with Christ in him. And he still died for me, and he still filled me with the Spirit. And everything that I would celebrate in life, I can still celebrate. But because Tony Thompson, years ago, had opened up his heart about what was happening in his marriage and church leadership, I had permission to open up about my marriage and leadership with others. Even though for him, it, it was 12 years ago, 10 years ago, I don't know whether it came difficult or easy. He just said it. It stayed with me, and it gave me permission in, in, in years later to really be open. And that, in some ways, saved us. So this vulnerability takes courage. If Tony Thompson had kept those cards to himself, I wouldn't have known that leaders go through things like this, and I wouldn't have known if I, if I could talk about it. But by being honest and open, he... He risked some upstart preacher bringing it up 10 years later in the gathering. <laughs> don't, don't tweet any of that, okay? It takes courage because you need to be available. You need to be vulnerable. You risk getting hurt. Sometimes you need to invest in some people and not others. Jesus chose 
a specific group of people. And I'm not advocating that we choose those people based on their sort of value, but we have to have some process of saying, like, like little Lego bricks, you know, each Lego brick has a different number of connectors. There's only so many people you can connect to. Some of us are two connectors, some of us are four connectors, some of us are six, some of us are 100, but no one's 10 million. So we have to choose. It takes courage because we're talking about playing the long game. When Jesus chose those 12 disciples, they weren't glamorous. They weren't the finished article. They weren't even sure bets. And so it takes courage to say, this is someone I'm going to pour my life into for some years. You, you cannot cheat the principles of sowing and reaping. So, so often, we want to impart maturity. You, you cannot impart maturity. Uh, if anyone has ever managed that, please teach us. I think you can impart many things, faith, vision, healing, but you can't impart maturity. It has to be shaped, and it takes courage to play the long game. It takes courage to have tough conversations. I had an email recently from someone in this room really helpfully critiquing my preaching with just a couple of tweaks. And I was so grateful that they did that. I mentioned it on one of the Sunday mornings at City Church without going into too many details. But I just said, you know, because we all are in a discipleship process, I appreciate it when people take the time to carefully help me. <laughs> I just want to read to you an email that I got back from uh, one of our worship leaders at City Church. I wrote him an email yesterday and uh, gave him some feedback. Um, Thanks, Daniel. That's really helpful and entirely understood. I'm very happy. I totally agree on what you said and admit I may be prone to X. So we'll take that on board. I'm sure I've said this before, but you absolutely have permission to give me any feedback to help me be a better worship leader. And then he goes on. Isn't that great? What a great response to an email where you kind of gulp and send it. So you do have to have tough conversations. And that takes courage. And there are certain types of conversation which are like going into holy ground, like parenting, finances, people's relationships, or even their spirituality. Some of these are really, really serious minefields with people. But what you're saying is, I'm committing myself to have these tough conversations because I care about you enough. And so it takes courage. It's much easier to throw truth out there and not to worry about how people respond. But if you impart truth and follow through with how people have responded to it, you are committing to having some tough conversations. And it also takes courage to give away responsibility, as Mike said. 
at City Church, there was a time in the past where the, the leader of the church would do 50% to 75% of the preaching. Now, we went through a period a couple of years ago where we systematically sat down with every area of church life against that uh, dis, this sort of definition of discipleship, and we committed ourselves to trying to produce that in everything we were doing. So one of the ways we did it with preaching was to give away a lot of the preaching slots and a lot of the worship leading slots and a lot of the service hosting slots. And of course, we did that as carefully as we could. Simeon, one of my fellow elders, did some preaching courses, took people through really carefully. But inevitably, the standard goes down. And it takes courage to take that hit, to have people who are used to... Um, seven out of 10 preaching, <laughs> to go down to 6.75. <laughs> um, and we've had to have a few conversations with people where we've said, this is how we've chosen to do it, because we're teaching people. We're trying to give it away. One of the examples of that I use is that we have two little boys who are five and seven, and we have people around for dinner. And Tuesday is the day that the boys have to cook. And if you're coming around on Tuesday and the boys are cooking, that's what you're going to get you might get a cold hot dog on an empty plate, okay? But unless we give them that opportunity, they're not going to learn, are they? And so we've found it. Some people are very, very happy to have a cold hot dog on an empty plate when they know a five-year-old has given it to them with great love and is doing the absolute best they can, and that's excellence as far as they're concerned. But it takes courage, it's easy to hold all your cards to your chest and to do it all yourself because you're better than everyone else. That doesn't take any courage. It takes courage to say to someone, I think you can do it. And to st stand by them where they take their first few tumbles. So we've talked about what discipleship is, disciples. We've talked about why it takes courage. And I just want to hit multiplication for a couple of minutes. Multiplication is long-term. David, can you just come up again with your, with your iPad and just, show, just talk us through this little, um, this little ex experiment you've done with numbers? So um, addition is one way of growing. Multiplication is a different way of growing. And the thing to remember is that addition looks better in the short term. So just, just talk us through one or two of the highlights here, David. Okay. Um, so I'm an accountant by profession, so numbers interest me. Um, so addition, let's say you can make 10 disciples in one year. Very doable. We can all make 10 disciples, new Christians. And then you think, well, next year I'm going to make 10 new disciples. And then the year after that, 10 new disciples. That's, that's great going, isn't it? And if you do that for 25 years, guess how many new disciples you'd have? 250. Excellent. Okay. What if... In year one, you make one disciple, and you invest your time into that one disciple to train them to make a disciple. And then year two, both of you go out and make disciples. So there's two of you doing it. So by the end of year two, there's three disciples. By the end of year four, you do the same again, there's seven disciples. By year six, if you were doing 10 a year in addition, you'd have 60. By year six, you would have 63 new disciples on multiplication. So now you're level after six years. 
If you carry on 25 years, how many do you think you would have on that process of multiplication? Some, any guests? Any guests on that? What do you reckon? How many do you think we'd have if we carried on one a year making disciples? It's 33 and a half million disciples versus 250. Okay? So you can have lots of crowns. Uh, lots of jewels in your crown by having 250 disciples in 25 years. Or you can make disciples that make disciples, and we can see a move of God across our communities and our nations. I know what I want to try to do. A bit slower, but long term, that's what we need to do. Is that okay? <laughs> okay, um, so just just to just to really try and land that specifically, give you an example. If you're trying to build your church through multiplication, through addition, okay, through addition in a worship service, what you might do is you might have your best preacher on as often as possible because that's going to attract the most people, isn't it? And for the according to those figures, for the first five years, you're going to look successful. But if you give yourself to multiplication. You may not have your best preacher on every week because you're trying to give other people an opportunity to grow in their gifting. And you are going to lag behind the church that's doing addition for the first five years. But in 25 years, you'll be producing a whole different type of fruit. So multiplication is long term. It's not glamorous. It's slow going. Sometimes the bar goes down for a while. It's about producing big people, not big church. Fruitfulness, not attendance. It aims to create producers, not consumers, and self-replicating maturity. So there's some implications for us of all this. We're all disciples. We are all disciples. We are all called to make disciples. And uh, that's a process that requires our presence and takes courage. I think that is an implication of what I've said. We are all true followers of Jesus who are disciples and called to make disciples. It's a process that requires us to be meaningfully present with one another in the long term, which takes courage. I think that is the implication of what we've described.